I'm Dr. Richa Talker. I'm a second year oncology fellow at Northwell, and I'm here with one of my colleagues also on the Onc Data Forum, Dr. Hawk. And we really have a great um, video planned for you guys today. Hey, thanks so much for introduction, Richa. Uh, I'm Wakas. I'm a third year uh, medicine resident at NYU in a clinical investigator track. And uh, looking forward to having a really important discussion with you about uh, you know, National Awareness uh, Immunization Month. So um, if you guys don't know, August is the National Awareness for Immunization Month. And we thought it'd be really great to talk about a few different topics on vaccines and what would be important to our cancer patients too. Hopefully you guys like this and we really do wanna increase awareness to get vaccinated. Whatever the vaccine series is, please um, share this video so that they, they're also motivated to go get their vaccines. Um, and, and Dr. Zakur, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the importance of the month for you and, and sort of how, it, how it's significant in your practice? So of course, um, yeah. I mean, growing up, I always wanted to be a physician. And one of the stories that would always capture me was listening to my grandparents and parents talk about what the world was like before polio and watching like the smallpox vaccine eradicate. And I was just always mesmerized by these. In 2020, uh, especially as a resident in New York, I saw how terrible COVID could be. And that was the world without just one vaccine. And after like December, when it first came out, it, it completely changed the landscape for treatment for our patients. And so that's really what has made me so passionate about vaccines. And especially with our cancer patients, these vaccines are huge. They may not do as much for someone that's 20 and gets the flu, for example. Um, you know, younger, healthier patients are less likely to end up in a hospital. But for our cancer patients, that's huge. You know, a patient in the hospital having delays in treatment, that can take someone from a curative intent treatment caused significant delays in their treatment and not only their overall quality of life, but their chances of um, responding to the treatment. So, um, Dr. Hawk, why are you so passionate about immunizations? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that you were sort of in New York during the height of the pandemic. Um, I think I started residency a year after you, so I was kind of a little bit after the class of residents that were kind of the COVID interns, uh, but I was actually at Baltimore doing my master's in public health at the time at Johns Hopkins. and. I was taking all these classes on immunizations and epidemiology and health management. And then to just kind of see the, the pandemic start, uh, actually in the middle of my MPH, I uh, just kind of put all the classes and all the theory I was learning into, into practice. And that really cemented, uh, I think, the importance of, of vaccinations for me. Um, and even though I haven't started my fellowship yet, uh, I have rotated in several uh, inpatient and outpatient oncology clinics. And it's really surprising to see, like a lot of times when I ask patients about their immunizations, um, especially for like like immunosuppressed patients, um, often many of them may not have the flu vaccine up to date or aren't you know vaccinated against invasive pneumococcal disease. Um, so I think I think this month is really important for uh, for both providers and patients to kind of reflect on the role of um, of immunizations, and hopefully we can kind of have a good good you know uh, discussion about this today. So uh, the first thing I kind of want to ask you about uh, is there are sort of a handful of vaccines that we know can help prevent cancer, um, you know, of course, for hepatitis and also for HPV. So I kind of want to first talk about the importance of the Gardasil vaccine, the HPV vaccine. Um, there's obviously a lot of stigma around it, and we both come from, you know, South Asian background, and there can be different kind of perceptions on it in different communities. So I was, I was kind of hoping you could talk a little bit about uh your, your experience of the, of the vaccine? Absolutely. I, I think that's a really good point. Um, usually a lot of times when I was in medical school and we talked about vaccine hesitancy, the focus of the conversations, I felt like were always around minority populations, people that were stigmatized by the general literature in um, like publications. 
but also patients with like low socioeconomic backgrounds and low health literacy. One thing that really bothers me a lot about the hesitancy with Gargisil is there's so much stigma, especially in well-educated communities. And it's really around um, the association with HPV being a sexually transmitted infection. And the thing is, it's there's not that many vaccines and things that can prevent cancer. There's really two big ones, hepatitis B and like any one of the HPV series. So it, it breaks my heart seeing patients, especially in like our clinic, that are suffering from head and neck cancers or anal cancers or cervical cancers that are so preventable. And it's not, it's, it's three shots and they wouldn't have had to go through a lifetime sequela of treatment and the complications from their treatment had they just gotten the vaccine. And unfortunately for some of the patients I have, they weren't lucky enough to have this before they were exposed to HPV. But nowadays we have this vaccine and it's just so miraculous that more people should go out and get it. In terms of the vaccines, there's three really big buckets. I think we were probably in middle school, the original vaccine came out, which was the Gardasil. And that was the quad, uh, quadrivalent that protected against um, HPV 16 and 18. And then um, there's also like Cerverix, which is three shots. But now there's another series too called Gargisil 9 that has different nine different series of um, strains of HPV. So being able to get this is huge because, you know, 70% of head and neck cancers or, you know, upwards of 80, like 80% 80 of cervical cancers are associated with HPV. And um, being able to get this really prevents a lot of unnecessary treatments that these patients would have to get had they developed cancer. The other thing we should also probably talk about is when this vaccine first came out, really the inclusion criteria was pretty limited. It was mostly like teenage women, I think. And then they started adding men. And probably for most of our training, even in medical school, the literature recommended the HPV vaccine, any one of the series for patients that were nine to 26. Um, and even right. the 21 was expanded to 26, probably when I was in college or medical school. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing people don't realize now is that there's also an increased expansion for people from 26 to 45. So um, CDC recommends it for everyone uh, under 26, but between 27 and 45, they do recommend it for patients and recommend it as like a risk-benefit discussion with your physician. So I, I feel like the stigma with HPV is pretty huge, but I'm sure, Dr. Hawk, you also experience a lot of stigma in the clinics too, right? With the with not just Gargisil, but a lot of other vaccines too. What, um, what's yeah. your experience been like? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the cool things about being at NYU is that I'm in the three hospital system. So you have, so you have a private hospital that I'm working at, and then you have uh, the Bellevue, which is, you know, the uh, sort of one of the country's oldest public hospitals, and I'm also at the VA. So really three different patient populations. And I've seen, I've seen vaccine hesitancy sort of wrapped up in different buckets in all the hospitals and different patient populations. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely seen my fair share of patients, um, even ones who are, are immunosuppressed, who, who might be hesitant about keeping up with vaccines. Um, or who might have some doubts about the efficacy of them, especially if they've, uh, you know, had, still had cancer, or if they still have some kind of complication or infection, even after getting getting immunized. I think the first thing that's been really helpful for me is just really using plain language when I talk about vaccine safety. Um, and I'm sure, like, you know, um, like a lot of other trainees and physicians know about this, but really just using the share approach so that when you speak about vaccines, it's not like you're talking down to a patient, but you're kind of trying to make a decision with them. 
So you kind of get a sense of what their what their values are, what their preferences are, and also getting a sense of where they're coming from. Do they have any family members or cousins or siblings or parents who did or didn't have a vaccine? Do they have any traumatic experiences with them? Or is there any mistrust with the with the medical community or medical system? Um, so getting a sense where they're coming from and just trying to empathize with them. Uh, and then and then kind of informing them uh, sort of, of of the pros and cons of, of vaccination after that, and usually trying to reach a decision with them. Um, and, and personally, I've, I've found a lot of benefit with with this approach, and it makes things a lot less tense, especially when there is a patient who's who's pre contemplative or or contemplative about a vaccine. Um, so that's sort of been my experience in the outpatient clinic uh, in the in the outpatient clinic setting. Could, so the share approach isn't something I think. I, I really was taught in residency or medical school as much. I was familiar with it a little bit, but would you mind going over it a little bit more? Because I think that would really yes. help a lot of physicians um, have another tool to talk about yeah. vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the SHARE approach uh, was developed by the AHRQ, and it's one of the, uh, it's, it's basically a five-step approach to approach decision-making with the patient. So step one is S, is where you're seeking your patient's participation. Um, so you're really just trying to bring up the topic with them and just get a sense of where they're coming from when it comes to discussing the vaccine. Age uh, is helping your patient explore different treatment options. So you kind of talk to your patient about getting vac you know, vaccinated now versus vaccinated later uh, versus not getting vaccinated at all. And just once again, just trying to get a sense of where they're at in terms of knowing the pros and cons of each of those options. Uh, then you go on to A, which is where you assess your patient's values and preferences. So this is where you have the really, I think, the best shot to empathize with your patient. You kind of ask if they've had any family members who have gotten the vaccine, if they've had any bad experiences with vaccines, um, what they know about vaccines from the TV or media, right? Um, R is where you reach a decision with your patient, right? So you've gone over the pros and cons uh, of the different options, and now you're kind of making a choice with them. And then E is where you evaluate the patient's decision. So. Obviously, we're not always going to get the answer we want, but hopefully, they decide that they want to get get vaccinated, and you say that this is this is a great choice. Uh, you're going to hopefully, you know, potentially add years to your life by preventing you know something down the road. So that's that's sort of the approach uh, that I've I've used um, as a resident, and it's been it's been very helpful. I really like that framework. I'm definitely going to take that away and try to use it more often, especially not just with vaccines, but with other um, like treatments that yeah. I think patients are very hesitant to pursue. Oh yeah, it's, it's yeah, definitely very helpful not just for, for immunizations, but for other other things as well. Um, and just to kind of build on that, you know, I know I know that you're obviously in the middle of a fellowship, and you're having to uh, you know, probably help administer chemotherapy or different cancer treatments. So I'm kind of curious how you talk to patients about uh, immunization scheduling around chemotherapies, um, and and sort of your experience with that. Right. So fortunately for us, a lot of our patients do have really good um, primary care doctors that are on top of most of the vaccine series. So um, as an oncology fellow, I, I focus more on ones that are affected with their treatment or the annual ones that they really do need to um, make sure they get. So flu COVID vaccines are usually the ones I, I bring up the most often with patients. Um, I think there's also, depending on the treatments, there are some special considerations with a few. So for example, when patients have um, some sort of treatment like a CD20 inhibitor, like rituximab, they may not always have a good response to the vaccine. So counseling patients on getting them before you start treatment or if the vaccine can be delayed until several months after they finish treatment to time it so that they would have a better response. Um, the other approach sometimes is there are some treatments like ecolizumab, which um, affects certain pathways in the immune system, so like the complement-mediated pathway and 
making sure these patients have like the meningococcal vaccine that's timed relative to the dose of the treatment is also really important. But I think one of the um, biggest patient populations that a lot of uh, patients or primary care physicians don't know about too is our transplant patients. So um, for patients that have some sort of blood cancer, so usually leukemia or myeloma, um, that are often undergoing curative intent treatment or not in myeloma, but at least in leukemias, um, these patients have a very, have to get an entire bone marrow stem cell transplant. So they undergo high intensive chemotherapy and then they're given their stem cells back or like a donor stem mm. cell back. But because of that high intensive chemotherapy, they literally have wiped out every immune cell they have in their body. So for the first year, you really can't vaccinate a lot of these patients. And depending on complications from the transplant, uh, we would start flu and the COVID vaccine maybe six months out, but that's also assuming they don't have complications from the transplant itself. Mm. And um, even some of the other vaccines, you have to delay significantly. So transplant patients have to get the entire primary series. So all of the mm. vaccines you and I got as a kid, again, after yeah. transplant. And even some of the live attenuated ones like varicella or MMR, they're not able to get until two years right. after transplant minimum. Because these patients are such high risk, it's really hard for our transplant patients and a lot of our cancer patients to be protected from these infections. So right. we really do rely on a lot of healthy people getting these vaccines to help protect the, the crowd. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think one of the interesting things is that when you think about understanding the efficacy of vaccines, understanding the disease prevention. A lot of the trials that are done to understand these vaccines aren't really going to include cancer patients in the first place. So that's why there's sort of a lack of, sort of hard data. If the patient ever asks you about sort of what's my chance of not getting a complication if I do have cancer with the vaccines. Um, but interestingly, there, there have been some studies uh, that have tried to at least explore this association and uh, I do know that uh, uh, the inactivated uh, varicella zoster vaccine has been shown to um, reduce, uh, you know, zoster severity in, in adults who have a stem cell transplant, uh, you know, and also the inactivated influenza vaccine has been shown to reduce severity um, in, in cancer patients who get the flu. So there, there, there is some evidence, but, you know, unfortunately, um, like trials just not powered uh, to kind of explore this this relationship, but definitely very important that we have these guidelines that you're, that you're talking about. So what other resources have you found that you think would help other physicians um, or trainees or even patients with uh, like getting vaccines or keeping and keeping an eye on what they need? Yeah. So the first thing for me, that's, that's really helpful is, um, you know, the CDC does have guidelines on vaccinations of the IDSA as well. Uh, they, they have guidelines that have been updated as early as, as this month, actually. Um, and they have a special section for patients with altered immune incompetence. So, that's really the best way for me to keep up with these things because every year there are going to be some changes here and there um, in, in patients. Uh, and also the, um, the National um, Immunization uh, Awareness Month website has really good resources for both uh, you know, care providers and for patients and for patients' family members. So uh, for patients, they have some apps where you can kind of check if you need to get a vaccine or not and help you keep up with that and just some general you know, counseling. And providers as well that has some links to the different schedules that you should be following for patients. So that's a really nice website um, that, that I really like. Dr. Hawk, I really love the resources that you gave. And I also found another one online on the CDC website too, which we can definitely put out in the show notes of this podcast. 
but it has a couple of quizzes for children and adults, very simple questions, and it'll tell you what vaccines you need and if you're missing yeah. any. For anyone that's listening, if you know anyone that's not vaccinated, please send them this video. Um, encourage them to go out and get vaccinated because it's, it's so important to keep our community healthy. Now, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Grover, for sharing that resource. And, and not just for patients to get vaccines, but also if you're a family member or if you have a loved one who has cancer, then definitely stay with the vaccines as well. Um, you know, we know that that vaccinated close contacts and family members of patients can uh, create a cocooning effect where hopefully you're able to kind of block out the effect of that uh, disease or, or virus in that in the patient's household. So definitely it should be it should be for everybody, not just for cancer patients. Mm -hmm.